Welcome to the Strangeology Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Foran. From cryptozoology, ufology, and the paranormal, to legends, forbidden history, and more. Listen in and explore the world of the weird and unexplained. Join me as I look into strange and fascinating tales and unearth the truths and theories behind some of the world's greatest mysteries. Be sure to head on over to our HQ, strangeology.com, where you can check out our blog, episodes archive, gift shop, and so much more. Now sit back, relax, and join me as we get weird. All right, welcome back to the Strangeology Podcast. Coming up on the episode today, I continue to follow the trail of giants across oceans and connections with ancient megalithic builders and a modern-day story of a chilling encounter and cover-up. Stay tuned. I hope that uh, everyone enjoyed the last episode on ancient giants. And if you haven't checked out that episode yet, definitely go back and listen to it first. If this is the first episode you're ever checking out for this podcast, uh, it's a big topic. So some things might not make sense uh, with this whole legend and theory that humanity once walked the earth with giants. I also want to say thanks to everyone who did check out the first episode already. It became my most downloaded episode ever on its first day of release by a pretty big margin. So that was really awesome to see. And I hope you all dig this one too. As far as Strangeology news and updates, uh, I have a couple of podcast interviews in the works coming up. I can't say too much other than that, but you'll know about them when you know. Uh, But I will be appearing on a Fireside Chat episode uh, with Jordan from Campfire Tales, uh, and that's going to be really fun. We're going to talk about cryptids and UFOs and ghosts. Uh, So yeah, definitely uh, I'll post about that on uh, social media whenever it comes out. Uh, But we were supposed to connect late last week, but he wound up getting hit with that big snowstorm that rolled through uh, the eastern half of the country (laughs) and lost power and and couldn't uh, do the interview. So, uh, yeah, and then two days later, New England got hit, and we were kind of snowed in for a few days here too. And, uh, yeah, it's a, a regular old winter wonderland up here right now. (laughs) The only thing that's missing is me going outside to go sledding, uh, but we don't have sleds. (laughs) Probably should, uh, should get some. Anyway, uh, I just added a bunch of new stickers into my shop. Uh, one's for my home state cryptid line that I had neglected to, uh, add in there. So if you're looking for a way to support the show and what I do here, you can go to, um, the website strangeology.com to find the link, uh, or just look for it in Etsy. Uh, alternatively, you can just type in strangeology.etsy.com, uh, to get there. I've also got a link tree link in my Instagram bio. Uh, there's a lot of different avenues you can go to find it, but it's pretty easy. I promise. <laughs> I also have these, uh, cryptid patterns that I, I designed, um, a newer one that's uh, a Fresno Nightcrawler-inspired uh, design that's super fun. And um, more recently, I did that one, but 
there's also a couple others that I had done last year, uh, a Bigfoot pattern and also a Mothman pattern set too, uh, which were typically just on uh, face masks. But I decided that I'm going to try these out on some printable fleece blankets and I wound up ordering a sample and it's super cozy. It's got this like Sherpa fleece on one side and it's, yeah, it's, really warm. So when I'm up in my, my attic office at night, I've been keeping it on my <laughs> legs and it keeps me warm while I'm doing research and recording and, and, uh, making designs. Uh, so those are there too. If you want to check those out along with all the shirts and hoodies and, and tank tops and, and pins and other stuff in my shop, uh, just know that your patronage and support is always appreciated. However, uh, you like to support your content creators. Now let's get on with the episode. So we left off talking about these cone-headed humans uh, or people that have these elongated skulls that have remains found in several parts of the ancient world that have some really interesting, unique features to them. Many of them are from head binding, yes, but there are some that are a lot more enigmatic. Were they genetic defects or mutations or... Was there something else going on there? Was there some other species of human that may have been at play, perhaps interbreeding with Homo sapiens? Is this a piece of the human story that has been lost to time and that we're only beginning to see bits and pieces of? So let's talk about one of these archaic human cousins known as the Denisovans or Denisovans. I think the jury is still out on the pronunciation. Between the year 2000 and 2008, in the Altai mountain regions of Siberia, the story of an unidentified hominin species began to emerge from an ancient cave. A finger bone fragment and two large teeth, along with other artifacts, were found in this place, which is known as Denisova Cave. Among the artifacts found was the earliest known sewing needle, which was carved from bone, and this bracelet that was made from chloridolite. I'll put pictures of these artifacts in the show notes, but Whoever tooled this bracelet was highly skilled, and it almost seemed like this piece of jewelry was machined, as it has this very precise drill hole within it. And to me, that suggests that whoever these people were, were a species with culture and technology. And who knows what else that they developed in the millennia that followed. As far as the molars that were found, these teeth were the largest human teeth ever found in the fossil record. And they were so large, in fact, that researchers originally thought that they were cave bear teeth. But they were actually from this previously unknown type of archaic human 
this cousin of ours that had never been found before. And based on the size of the teeth alone, it suggests that this species of ancient humans were of an exceptional size and height. And after studying these relics and and being able to extract mitochondrial DNA, scientists announced their findings in 2010 of this new species. It turns out that the, the finger bone that was found was identified as belonging to a juvenile female, and it was hominin, but it was neither Homo sapien or Neanderthal. And it was found that the molars also came from this strange new species. Unfortunately, we don't have any complete skeletons and don't know exactly what they looked like, but we do know that they were big, or at least there's a chance that they were bigger than us. You definitely want to consider and keep in mind that Neanderthal's molar teeth were also larger than ours, along with having a larger skull and brain capacity, but the more complete skeletons we have of Neanderthals, we know that they were, on average, shorter in stature than modern humans, although I'm sure there's some outliers that were taller. And this could be important because Denisovans may have been more closely related to Neanderthals than they were to us, but again, we don't know for sure just how big that this species was. It is possible that they were of a very tall stature. Time will tell. The molars that were found were two and a half times the size of our molars, and that suggests that perhaps even these people in general might have been two and a half times our size, which you're getting into giant territory with that kind of information. So the people that these fossils came from It turns out that they lived during the Upper Paleolithic some 40,000 years ago. There was also evidence of periodic Neanderthal occupation in this cave as well, suggesting some possible intermingling or cohabitation between these different human species, although that's just speculation at this point. And I should note here that Neanderthals are, are thought to be the originators of the gene for red hair. And perhaps Neanderthal and Denisovans reproduced viable offspring due to their intermingling, and that gene for red hair got passed on to future generations of Denisovan hybrids, uh, which perhaps there's a connection to red-haired giant legends later down the line. It's interesting to think about. Since these findings were revealed, there have been additional bone fragments found in the Denisova cave, uh, like an arm or leg bone fragment in 2012, and there was a parietal bone fragment found in 2019. The only other known Denisovan example was identified in Baishia Cave on the Tibetan Plateau, which was a partial mandible originally discovered in 1980, 
uh, that was kind of just like put back in into a box in in the back of a room somewhere. And then later on, it was found that this belonged to this Denisovan species. And it's the most complete uh, fossil piece that exists today, uh, which it's in the hands of China. Um, and this particular specimen was found to be 160,000 years old. Uh, so it's, it's thought that groups of early humans related to our common ancestor Homo heidelbergensis made their way out of Africa some 400,000 or more years ago. It's a pretty big span of time. <laughs> uh, but it's thought that one group migrated west towards Europe and evolved to become the Neanderthals, and the other group migrated east towards Asia, evolving into the Denisovans, and the people that stayed behind in Africa became Homo sapiens. It's believed that most Denisovans died out around 40,000 years ago, like the Neanderthals, and it was also during this period that Cro-Magnon Man began to proliferate around the world and wound up out-competing its other hominin cousins and became the dominant human species, which turned into us. And interestingly, although it's thought that Denisovans largely disappeared around 40,000 years ago, there is some evidence to suggest that small pockets of these people may have persisted in New Guinea as late as 14,500 years ago, and perhaps even later than that. Well, what about a connection with North America and these legends of giants? So this species of ancient human, the Denisovans, they lived in the steppes of Asia, right? Well, perhaps if they had the technology to machine gemstones, perhaps they had the technology to build boats, and, you know, how and, and where would they travel to? Most human species are migratory. And there's a reason why our people made it to every corner of the globe. Um, one theory talks about these people making their way down through Asia, uh, towards East Asia, down through Southeast Asia, uh, and into the Indonesian archipelago and Northern Australia, and then island hopping across the Pacific. And there's another theory that talks about them potentially uh, navigating the currents of the Pacific Gyre on extended voyages to make it to the Americas, uh, like the West Coast north of North America. And there's other, other theories that talk about them potentially crossing the Bering Land Bridge with tribes of modern humans like the Ainu from Japan and making it into Alaska. And there are even interesting connections with archaeological sites in the country of Turkey, along with similar figurines and statues that are found across the Asian continent that use a really light stone kind of in a way to depict a, uh, a fair skin tone. 
And they're typically depicted as being cone-headed with deep-set eyes. And it's just really kind of curious. Like, who were these statues supposed to be showing? Ancient alien theorists love love this stuff and usually think that they're they're aliens but i'm not so sure they're depicting something extraterrestrial it seems like they might be depicting another species a different species of human that once lived on earth there are even theories that perhaps the phoenicians which uh were known to be seafaring people, are are thought to be uh, the mysterious sea people who traveled all around, and uh, they might have made it to the Americas in ancient times. And guess what? Uh, Imagery of of the Phoenicians largely depicts them as, as having these tall hats, which would be great for fitting uh, a cone-headed or elongated skull type of person. (laughs) And it's like, could they have descended from a lineage of Denisovan hybrids? Uh, Perhaps these people didn't just migrate down through Eastern Asia and into the Pacific. Maybe they also traveled westward towards Europe and the Middle East. Like, you even find examples of, of that look in ancient Egypt uh, and it just <laughs> something something seems to be going on here. Something happened in our past that's certainly far more complex than we realize. Now, you may have heard that certain people of European descent might have a few percentage points of their DNA being Neanderthal, right? I'm sure some of you have probably done a, a 23 and me or whatever the test is that <laughs> determines that. Well, it turns out that a number of modern people living today actually have Denisovan DNA. And it suggests that uh, some ancient people were getting busy and uh, did not discriminate. And uh, out of this, most certainly created a number of hybrid people between the Denisovans and the Homo sapiens who would have continued to propagate for generations. So we're aware of these genetic markers in in DNA from the tests that were done from the bones found in Denisova Cave, Uh, and you can kind of follow this trail of breadcrumbs that was left from Central Asia, where Denisova Cave is, to... Eastern Asia, Southern Asia, and down through the Indonesian island chain to Papua New Guinea and to the Pacific Islands like uh, the Melanesian Islands and in some Australian Aboriginal populations. And surprisingly, in South America near Peru, there's also a hot spot of this DNA that has been identified. And with recent claims in, in 2020, eight-foot-tall skeletons being discovered in New Zealand, I would hazard a guess to say that if it's legit, those skeletons might just have Denisovan DNA as well. It'd be really interesting to uh, see if anything would ever come of that. And that's uh, 
a newer a newer claim, a newer story that I, I came across uh, while researching for this episode. So I'll have to follow up on that at some point. But uh, the the highest amount of Denisovan DNA that we've verified in modern populations can be found in Melanesian people who curiously have blonde hair and blue eyes and also have a dark complexion. And I have to wonder, are those features vestiges from the Denisovans? And speaking of vestiges, the Papuan people of Papua New Guinea, which are also considered Melanesian, have this high amount of Denisovan DNA. And what's interesting here is that sometimes babies there are apparently born covered in this fine fur. And their term for these literal fur babies is iraputi. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Apologies if that's not how you pronounce it. We're just going with phonetics here. But uh, it's it's culturally and socially an accepted thing, and, and eventually the fur sheds off. And this might suggest that it could be a leftover genetic trait of Denisovan DNA or, you know, a, a recessive gene that pops up from time to time, connecting them to this lineage of prolific travelers and voyagers. And this kind of phenomenon is known elsewhere in the world, uh, but it's called Lanugo, which is where a baby is is born with body hair developed in vitro to help regulate body temperature. So perhaps we all have this, but it is, it's an interesting anecdote from this part of the world uh, where these people are known to have this higher percentage than normal uh, of Denisovan DNA. According to Graham Hancock, there is also Denisovan DNA that is found in North America in certain Native American tribes, which makes a compelling argument that these people were prolific travelers, and if they were giants, perhaps there is something to be said about all of these old legends. It certainly seems like these people, these Denisovan people, traveled through the island archipelagos of Indonesia and New Guinea, and perhaps subsequent generations of them island-hopped, throughout Polynesia and ultimately landed in in South America. And as a reverse to Dewhurst thinking that the mountain builders traveled south, maybe they actually traveled north from Peru and became the mound builders. Uh, Curiously, many of the indigenous peoples of these places have legends of six-fingered, fair-skinned, giant godlike beings who ruled over them and you know eventually in most of these stories people would revolt and drive away these giant god beings or kill them off and if things are going sideways with with your serfdom there's (laughs) plenty of reason to move on to a new spot and try to rule and start the cycle again so what about evidence of advanced technology if this culture of giants were capable of this kind of thing, is there any evidence left behind? Uh, say, like 
megalithic building. Well, if we're looking along the uh, the trail here, for starters, there's a place called Gunung Padang in Java, Indonesia, uh, and the name of that actually translates to the Mountain of Light. And this place is a megalithic site that's potentially built on a man-made hill, or maybe you could call it a mound, perhaps. And it's it's said to be, some people believe, that it's the oldest pyramid on Earth. And researchers who have investigated this site have apparently found layers of, of human activity there dating back as far as 26,000 years ago, which kind of, it, A, that's way longer ago than anything that we we thought humans were capable of, of having any kind of technology or doing anything other than being hunter-gatherers. I mean, that's twice the age of Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. Uh, and if it's true, you know, the, the it sounds kind of like how Mayans built their pyramids, where they built an original structure, and then over the generations, more layers would be added onto it over time. And what we see today uh, that's not consumed by the jungle is like the final final layer of, of megalithic building. Uh, it, it's, so, it's, it's wild considering that scale of time, but if there's a suggestion that Denisovans were involved and, and they turned out to be this technologically advanced species of people, it's probably far enough back in time for a compelling argument to be made uh, seeing as they might have survived uh, just before the end of the last ice age uh, and at the start of the Younger Dryas. And thinking of these super ancient sites, it's, it's interesting when you consider the fact that sea level was much lower than it is today due to all of that ocean water being frozen up on the ice caps. Like, if, if there were ancient humans with technology living in that area back then, uh, and, you know, if there was also giants walking among them, uh, what's hiding under all that water? Because if you look at a map of the Earth during the last ice age, sea levels were three to 400 feet lower than they are today. And you'll see that there was a ton of land above water in Southeast Asia and Indonesia. Like, Australia was practically connected to Asia, and there's also the Bering Strait that connected Alaska to to Russia, which is one of the primary thoughts of how people crossed over from Asia into North America. So seems like there are two fronts, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's super interesting, and I always have to wonder... You know, what's what's just under the water? You know, we've got legends of Atlantis being sunk under the sea. It's it's very interesting. And back to Indonesia. So 55 to 65,000 years ago, you know, this this area was above sea level and scientists call it Sundaland, which is right where another interesting place in this part of the world is, which is Sulawesi Island. And this island is just east of Borneo, and it was actually disconnected from Sundaland, but it was close enough 
to easily be accessed by simple boats if there were people around at that time that had that technology, which in this time frame, people did manage to get to Australia with the Aboriginal people that we know that were there 50,000 years ago. And Sulawesi Island, as it turns out, is home to these enigmatic megalithic structures, which have these strangely shaped heads, with some reaching as tall as 15 feet above the ground, and they appear to show a male humanoid figure with a broad nose, deep setback eyes, kind of, you know, apish-like features, and arms going down their side, and it's kind of holding on to its junk. <laughs> and that detail is important later, so remember that. This island also has these other weird large cylindrical bowl-like carved stones called kalimbas. And some of them have zoomorphic and anthropomorphic designs carved into them. And most of them have one end hollowed out. Some of them have two, but it's not thought that they were used for like bathing or anything. And these megaliths remain a mystery today. And there's no archaeological consensus on just how old these statues and megaliths are or who made them exactly but they could potentially be connected to other sites further down the road. So moving on, uh, there's another place in the Pacific on the island of Pompeii called Nan Madal, which is part of the modern-day federated states of Micronesia. And this place was like an ancient Venice Archaeological evidence shows that the island was inhabited as early as 200 BCE, and the foundations for Nan Madal was thought to have been laid around uh, 500 CE. And by the year 1100 to 1200, the Sadalur dynasty moved in and ruled the island. And what's crazy is that this place was built on top of a coral reef, and as far as we know, is one of a kind. And this megalithic site is full of ruined temples, tombs, and bathhouses that were built out of these 5 to 10 ton stones of basalt. And to this day, it's unclear how all of these stones were moved and placed by the population that lived there, which was believed to only be twenty-five to 30,000 people at the time. And they also constructed these megaliths on these artificial islets or tiny islands. It seems that nobody knows really who exactly built this place, but local legend talks about an ancient set of kings called, and I'm going to butcher this, the, the Namwarkis or the Namwarkis, and they built it using magic, apparently. So it's like, was it literal magic or did the builders of this place have technology so much more advanced than the native peoples of that island that it was indistinguishable from magic? That's kind of a uh, popular saying of how we'd view extraterrestrial technology that's hundreds or thousands of years ahead of our own, right? Uh, and the time frame might not be the best example, but perhaps this site is older than we think. Other theories mentioned that Ancient Greeks may have been involved in Nan Madal, or perhaps it's a vestige of the ancient lost continent of Lemuria. Um, so potentially, maybe it's 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 older than what uh, 
archaeologists are telling us. But either way, it's it's a super interesting site. And as we travel along, there's there's further examples of megalithic building throughout the South Pacific, uh, like on the island of uh, Tongatapu, with which has this stone trilithon and these giant stone uh, canal fortifications. <laughs> that it's a you know it's a it's a big mystery. But I want to talk about another spot in this area of the world, to the south of Nan Madal lies an island chain known as the Solomon Islands, just east of Papua New Guinea. And it is yet another region that harbors legends of giants, and specifically cannibal giants. And these island giants can be found within the folklore of the indigenous people of these islands. And according to numerous local reports in the modern day, it's said that they still exist within the jungles of the Solomon Islands. If you're not familiar, the culture that lived on these islands had a long history of practicing cannibalism and headhunting. And you might have seen old shows or horror movies where travelers get stranded on a tropical island and it's full of cannibals. You know the trope there. They wind up getting tied up on a stick and they're about to get boiled alive or roasted over a fire. And it might seem cartoonish, but it's a, a very real history that used to happen in this part of the world uh, and other parts too. Uh, now, maybe Legends of Cannibal Giants ties into those practices. Maybe there's a relation between that and stories of cannibalistic giants in North America as well. Uh, perhaps this was a practice that a migrating culture that traveled through this part of the world and beyond maintained, and the people that they lorded over kept going with those practices. It's uh, you know just speculation, but it is interesting. An Australian named Marius Boyerion has written a lot on this subject. He was a research director for the Solomon Anthropological Expedition Trust Board. Marius lives and worked in the islands and wound up marrying a Solomon Islander woman. And after spending a lot of time in the culture, he began to learn of these old stories about giants and decided to start writing everything down that he was hearing, which, you know, that's a great idea. If you're an anthropologist, you want to know the the, the legends and the folklore uh, of the people that you're studying. And so he refers to these giants as the Guadalcanal giants, and he described their look as being... 10 or more feet tall with, you know, some reaching far greater heights. Uh, I think there were some uh, that reported up to at least 15 to 20 uh, feet tall. Uh, they had very long black, brown or reddish hair. There's the red hair again. <laughs> a protruding double eyebrow, bulging red eyes, a flat nose, wide mouth, and an awful smell, which if... Uh, islanders were out and about and they smelled something that nasty, they would take that as a sign of a giant being near and to avoid the area uh, because they were probably out looking for uh, some some food, <laughs> a.k.a. people to eat. I mean, this kind of sounds almost Bigfoot-like, 
as well. Like, wait, wait a second. Is Bigfoot tied into this somehow or <laughs> relic hominids? Uh, I don't know. Uh, probably not, but uh, this is, this description is pretty much, it sounds like it's describing an ape-like giant, which is really interesting. Uh, but is there evidence, physical, tangible evidence of these supposed giants? Well, reportedly there are fossilized humanoid footprints that can be found in the Solomon Islands uh, and elsewhere like Australia, Indonesia, and the South Pacific that are so large that they suggest, you know, if they're real, whoever made them uh, could have been in excess of 20 feet tall. I'll talk about fossilized footprints a little later uh, in a little bit more depth. But according to Solomon Islanders, the reason as to why they aren't seen often in the modern day is that these giants apparently have this they moved underground and they have this network of caves and tunnels that allow them to live and travel between all the islands undetected. Uh, and, and one of the larger islands in this chain is called Schwazul, and it's about 186 miles long by 50 miles wide at its widest point. And the island is plenty populated with villages and people, but the the center of the island is a place that nobody goes to due to the legend of giants. Uh, so it's it's pretty interesting. And also to make that kind of connection to uh, cave dwellers and the, the Lovelock Cave in North America, where the alleged red-haired giants that were um, hunting the Paiute people and eating them uh, it's perhaps there is there's some kind of uh, connection as well. And I've also read some theories that these giants may have been a little bit more nocturnal, which is why they could have dwelled in caves and they would come out at night rather than than during uh, the daylight hours. Uh, and that's just a really interesting connection. <laughs> This is a big episode today, but we're going to take a quick break for listeners new and old. If you like what you hear and you'd like to support the Strangeology podcast, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash strangeology. I offer a wide variety of benefits and perks starting at some affordable monthly rates. Some of the perks include a merch discount to my Etsy shop, VIP discord access, early access to content, access to the members-only Strangeology Beyond segments, exclusive members-only merch, and more. And now, a quick shout-out to my growing group of patrons who help keep the lights on at Strangeology. We've got Alex Dorgan, Alyssa, Mystic Novelty Company, Appalachian Huntsman, MetaZoo Games, Greg Morrill from All the Weird, Sean Cologne, Miranda Jarnot, John Hickenbottom, Marine Azmat, Gail Frederick, William Malcomies, Adam Flynn, Connor Boyle, Ryan Holiday, Cassie Maratson, 
and Anne Lutrzykowski Ford. So again, if you're looking for a way to support the show, head on over to patreon.com forward slash strangeology. You might find something you like. And now, let's get back to the show. And we're back. So we seem to keep traveling eastwards. And the last stop that you hit before South America turns out to be none other than Easter Island. Now, Easter Island is a place full of mystery. And it's it's the furthest island away from any land on the planet. So it's it's super remote. The official story is that the island was discovered and settled between 300 and 1200 CE by a tribe of Polynesian people from the Marquesas Islands. This island was a tropical paradise, and they called it Rapa Nui. Archaeologists aren't quite sure exactly when the first people arrived, but most agree that it happened within this large span of time. Now, this society evolved and grew, and it's believed that up to 25,000 people once inhabited it. And as is common with humans, conflict would eventually arise from time to time, and generations of deforestation and use of scarce resources led to a swift decline of the Rapa Nui people who wound up warring with themselves over whatever resources were left until they ultimately perished, save for a handful of survivors. By the time Europeans arrived to the island on Easter Day in 1722, hence why we call it Easter Island, uh, there were only a few hundred people left living there. And today there are only about two to 3,000 people that live on the island, and only a small handful of those are people that have ties to the original population of the island. Uh, so much of the, the information and, and legends of these people uh, someday will be lost to history. So the most known part and probably most famous part about Easter Island is, of course, the Moai statues, these giant carved megalithic heads and figures that dot the landscape. Uh, and, and there's almost 900 of these things just everywhere. And they look like caricatures of people with these long noses, sloped-back heads, long ears, and deep-set-back eyes. It's believed that the Moai could be representations of ancestors of the Rapa Nui people to worship. And the construction of these statues led to vast consumption of resources on the land, which played a part in that society's collapse. And in case you didn't know, uh, the Moai statues aren't just heads. In fact, the majority of them also have torsos, which 
are buried several feet underground. And they also have these curious, long-gauged-looking ears. There is a thought, too, that perhaps these statues could have represented an ethnically different people that may have ruled over the Rapa Nui, and that maybe the reason these statues are so big is that because this ruling class of people were also really big. An aspect of the Moai that not a lot of people know about and is something that blew my mind when I first learned about is that the torsos of these statues bear a striking resemblance to those anthropomorphic T-pillars which can be found at Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. And just a, a, a quick side note, if you follow me on TikTok or don't, uh, I did do a, a series on Gobekli Tepe, so you might want to check that out for a primer. Uh, but both of these, the Moai and these T-pillars, are carved to show these arms coming down the sides of the body and then resting on the lower stomach or groin area very much like those strange megalithic statues found back on Sulawesi Island in Indonesia. Were these made by the same culture, or was it just coincidence? Uh, there's also these, these figurines and, and statues that were found at Gobekli Tepe that show this exact same posture, this, this exact same image, and they have this long nose, deep-set eyes, it's holding its crotch, <laughs> and uh, and get this. There's also these these symbols on the T pillars of Gobekli Tepe, and I'll have to. I've got. I'm throwing lots of stuff in the show notes, guys. Uh, but I'll, I'll put this in the show notes. But there's this this symbol on these T pillars. That's it's kind of like an H shape that's flanked with half circles on either side. It's really kind of a unique looking symbol. And the crazy thing is, is that this exact same design can be found on artwork from the Aborigines in Australia. How is that possible? You could argue that it's just coincidence, but it seems like whoever built Gobekli Tepe might, might have hung out in the Australian outback at some point in history. Perhaps there's a connection there. And if they could travel from Turkey to Australia, what's to stop them from traveling throughout the Pacific and into the Americas? I think that within a reasonable doubt, there's some possibility and some connection there. Another interesting detail about the Moai statues is that many of them have these stone toppers on the tops of, of the heads uh, that are called pukau which are thought to be representative of either hats or top knots of hair. And guess what? They're red. And if they were hats, maybe they are in just the shape that they could hide a cone head under them. <laughs> and the characterization of the heads certainly, you know, make it look like they are elongated to an extent. So does this suggest that these people represented by the Moai were potentially red-haired giants? And you can't talk about Easter Island without also mentioning the Rongo Rongo tablets, which have this hieroglyphic 
writing on them that to this day nobody has been able to decipher. And, you know, most think that this was a written language of the Rapa Nui people, but, you know, just throwing it out there, just spitballing, <laughs> uh, perhaps this was the language of these these redhead giants that passed on language and knowledge to the Rapa Nui people. Who knows? It's <laughs> just speculation. Uh, I'm not an archaeologist or uh, an anthropologist, so who knows? There's also these megalithic wall structures that can be found on Easter Island as well that are these tightly fitted uh, carved stones that that look an awful lot like pre-Inca stone walls that you can find in South America. It, it's a, a building technique that people call polygonal building. Uh, I've also heard it be called cyclopean architecture, uh, which can be found in Egypt and other places around the world. And to me, this just seems like more evidence of a trail being left behind. And you can also look at megalithic sites like Tiwanaku and Pumapunku in Bolivia uh, that have these tightly fitting stones and very advanced building techniques. And there's also the Nazca Lines in the area, which have a, uh, a, a figure that's called the Astronaut, which is all, the, all this stone just moved out of the way on a mountainside uh, that kind of depicts a giant being. <laughs> uh, there's also Sacsayhuaman and, and Machu Picchu in Peru, which uh, Sacsayhuaman is this massive uh, polygonal stone wall structure that has these absolutely gargantuan stones that no one really knows how they, they put all that stuff into place. And you'll also find that there's stones and structures built on top of them that were from the Inca. And they seem to be trying to emulate the, the perfection of these polygonal structures, uh, which are also said to be earthquake proof, which is interesting, but you find that the lower, the lower levels are just so much older. And then there's these newer levels of like the Inca and the Andean peoples that just aren't, aren't as uh, well put together, which is really interesting. And with Machu Picchu, you know, like the whole mountaintop that that's on was just shaved off. And there's several other mountains like that as well. It's, it's just super, super interesting. All these, all these connections here, but I'm, I'm going off on a little bit, <laughs> a little bit of a, 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 a tangent, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, pre-Incan uh, Andean people weren't capable of these feats, but I'm just presenting the idea that perhaps there was some kind of outside influence, not aliens, uh, or imparted knowledge by another group of people uh, that had this technology that were moving throughout the world in the ancient past, uh, a progenitor species, if you will, of uh, maybe giants. And if you if you look at uh, the legends of giants from the Manta people of Peru, uh, they spoke uh, about a race of redheaded giants who arrived on the coast at the point of Santa Elena in massive reed boats. And the Manta people coexisted with these giants for some time. And it was said that 
The giants were so large that a full-grown man only made it up to their knees. And maybe that was an exaggeration, because that's enormous. But perhaps these people were that big. I don't know. Uh, and maybe they were... Uh, maybe they traveled from Easter Island and f- fled to South America because they were driven out or, or, or something like that. Um, so was this a, a potential trail left behind from uh, people that were potentially uh, of Denisovan ancestry? And if they coexisted with mankind and, and were intelligent and had technology more advanced than than us at the time, uh, like the knowledge of megalithic and, and polygonal architecture, building boats capable of sailing the seas, and more. Uh, perhaps they were revered or treated as some kind of royalty, and they imparted some kind of knowledge or left signatures wherever they migrated to. And if they made it to South America after Easter Island, what would stop them from traveling north and becoming the mound builders. Perhaps there was technology and knowledge lost over time that they weren't able to really do the megalithic architecture anymore, and then they just kind of did mound building. It was some kind of vestige of, of uh, you know, an ancient lineage. And perhaps they were also related to the cannibal, red-haired race of giants that, according uh, to legends from from the Paiute people in the American Southwest uh, that dealt with having to <laughs> take those giants out in Lovelock Cave. It's this whole thing's a pretty out there theory, and and you know we we barely have any fossil evidence of of Denisovans in in Asia, never mind elsewhere or what their culture and technology was like. But perhaps there's there's some truth behind these theories just waiting to be uncovered. And what if this supposed race of ancient giants left behind some kind of calling card, you know, like a uh, giant humanoid megalith of long-eared, cone-headed people all over the world? Or what if there was something like a fingerprint or a footprint? I mentioned before that in certain parts of the world, there's these strange footprint-like looking things that are, are found all over Southeast Asia and elsewhere. And, you know, the, it's interesting. These several strange stones and rocky outcrops can be found pretty much in every corner of the world that contain what appear to be giant human feet, some with six toes and some that are twice as big as an average human's foot today. And some stones just have one print, kind of like someone was putting their signature on something. And there's others that are almost like a walking path. And fossil footprints are a legitimate thing that we know about. There are known sites with dinosaur tracks that are hundreds of millions of years old, and even known sites with early human footprints that are etched into the landscape. There's one site in particular that can be found in South Africa near the border of Swaziland that has this almost four-foot-long, 
what appears to be a human footprint sunken into a vertical column of granite. Local shamans say that it was left by a being that ran across the ground when there was warm lava and ash flowing over. And that's how this footprint shape was imprinted there. Now, most scientists would say that this is just natural phenomenon. And I would think even if you were a flesh and blood giant, if you're running through lava or hot ash, you're going to have a bad time and probably not make it too far. Um, I don't know how many of you saw Dante's Peak uh, back in the 90s. And there's other sites like in India where there's these giant footprint shaped depressions in this riverbed area that people go to worship and pray to uh, because they believe those were left behind by Hindu gods. It, it is interesting, and, and maybe there is a connection there. Maybe some of these prints are more than meets the eye, although the skeptic in me does say that these were probably caused by erosion or people deliberately carving them out for whatever reason. Uh, I'll link a few in the show notes so that you can see what I'm talking about. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it is worth a consideration. But anyway, I'm going to mention one more anecdote here uh, since we've been going on for a little while. And honestly, this subject could probably go on for a few more parts. Uh, but uh, we're at the top of the hour here. And uh, thanks for joining me today and concluding this journey for now into this legend of giants. This comes from M.K. Davis, and it takes place in Winnemucca, Nevada, at the Humboldt Museum. For those who don't know, M.K. Davis is a Bigfoot and cryptid researcher, and back in 2014, he apparently visited this museum after hearing rumors about them being in possession of a set of very large and unusual skulls. The thought was that they could be from the legendary red-haired giants of Lovelock Cave that I've mentioned so many times in these episodes. So he goes there to check it out, but the Humboldt Museum denies ever having any skulls like that in their possession. But somehow, sometime later, M.K. Davis claims that he came into possession of a set of photographs that were taken probably sometime in the 1970s, and they appear to depict these enormous humanoid skulls taken in the basement of the Humboldt Museum. And what these photos reveal is nothing short of extraordinary, if they're real. There's this one skull which appears quite large, although there's really nothing to reference the size within it, unfortunately. But in this picture, you can see there's a double row of teeth much like old articles and legends that I had mentioned in the previous episode, which makes this really compelling. There's always the chance that it's just a, a clever fake, but if it's real, that really makes it something. And there's this other photo with four skulls and two jawbones in it. The two center skulls are facing the camera, while the bookended skulls are showing the the backside of the cranium. And what's interesting is that M.K. Davis points out that these skulls have 
identical characteristics to skulls from people of Polynesian descent, which have this kind of distinct uh, pentagonal shape when viewed from the backside. He then points out that the jaws of what Polynesian skulls have, uh, which is this distinct feature called a rocker jaw, and it's where the chin part of the jawbone kind of flares up a bit. And guess what other skulls have this feature? That's right, the gigantic skulls in these pictures that the Humboldt Museum allegedly has in their possession, or at least had in their possession at one point in time. So this finding really begs the question of what were these abnormally large Polynesian people doing in the ancient American Southwest? Were these the giants of Lovelock Cave? Were these people related to the Denisovans who came down from the steppes of Asia, traveled down towards Southeast Asia and the Indonesian archipelago, across the Pacific Ocean to Easter Island, to the coast of Chile in South America, up to Peru, and ultimately up to North America. And perhaps there was a secondary group that crossed the Bering Land Bridge and came down from the north and became the mound builders. <laughs> Who knows? But considering everything that I've mentioned in these episodes, it really makes you wonder. And that, my friends, is where we're going to get off this train for now. This was a, a fun series to really dig into, and there were so many moving parts and theories that have some really interesting connections if you look into it. I'm not saying that any of these theories are fact and correlation doesn't mean causation, etc. <laughs> but I think that there is some part of the human story and our history from long ago that we have a very little to uh, preliminary understanding of, I guess is the way you could say it. <laughs> and, you know, were a lot of these stories of giant skeletons in the 1800s and that kind of thing hoaxed for a quick buck over the years? I mean, my, my answer to that would be absolutely yes. Uh, and we have proof of that, of course. But when you look further into the idea of giants, you, you see these similarities of cultures and their art and building styles and they have similar stories of these massive people that used to either rule over them or eat them and they're so similar yet disconnected supposedly over time and space it just seems like there might be something missing uh maybe Maybe it's a, you know, a collective consciousness thing or coincidence, but who knows? I'd love to hear people's thoughts, so let me know what you think over on my socials, Instagram, Facebook. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this whole theory. Uh, you know, maybe it's all just bunk, but there are some really, really interesting details about it. And as always, thank you again for joining me today. As we get weird on the Strangeology podcast, I have to 
give a thank you to everyone for checking out the show and sharing it and liking and supporting what I love to do, which is talking about this weird stuff. Uh, it means the world to me and helps me out a lot. And there's still so much more to do and to talk about and to uncover. And again, if you do like the show and my content and are looking for a way to support what I'm doing here, you can head on over to my Etsy shop, which is at strangeology.etsy.com. I recently dumped in a bunch of new merch, and I can't remember if I mentioned it in the intro, <laughs> but I've got uh, a brand new Homestate Cryptid design featuring the Jackalope for Wyoming, which is super fun. Uh, you can also support me by signing up to become a member of my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash strangeology, and there's a lot of cool rewards there as well. And don't forget to follow me over on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter as well for daily stuff, uh, shorter form content, memes, and uh, all things Fortean. I've been diving into some ancient history stuff on TikTok lately, which has been super fun, and a lot of people have been engaged in it. So if you're into that kind of stuff, uh, head on over there to catch, catch up with me and see what I'm doing there. Uh, also, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel. I do put all my podcast episodes up there as well as other video content, too. And I have some things in the works uh, that I'm, I'm planning on, uh, some longer format videos. Um, so you won't want to miss that as well. And I've also got a blog and a mailing list over on Strangeology's website, strangeology.com, as well. And if you'd like to leave me some feedback or shoot over suggestions, you can drop them on the contact page there or just DM me. All right. I think that that wraps things up for today. So for uh, patron members, stick around after the short break for Strangeology Beyond, where we're going to go into the lore and the story behind a modern giant story for everyone else. Have a great rest of your week. Take care of yourselves and each other. And as always, keep it strange.
And welcome back, friends and patrons. Thanks for sticking around, and holy hell, that was a massive episode I just did. It would probably be fun to do a follow-up episode at some point and talk about some, some other specific...